So let's get our Bibles out open to 1 Timothy chapter 1, page 1362 on the Pew Bible in front of you. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, we're starting a new series. It's a short four-week series called On Display. We're going to be talking about the gospel on display in our marriages and our relationships. We might touch on some parenting issues, but it's going to be uh, a very uh, wonderful and productive, I pray, time that we spend together around God's Word. Me and the other pastors have been talking about this for quite some time. Like I said before, my intention was to start this before Habakkuk. I mean, I never even had the intention to start Habakkuk, but God had different plans. So, we're now here. And uh, don't worry if you're not married. Uh, if you're single and want to be married, this will be helpful for you. If you're married, obviously it will help you. If you're, uh, you know, old and done with marriage, it will still be helpful to you because we're talking about the gospel. So it's okay. No matter where you are in the spectrum, okay, you can substitute. Every time I say marriage, you can substitute the word relationship and it will be applicable. So it will be helpful. And good and profitable because it's the gospel and it always is. All right, let's pray and ask God to help us and then we'll study together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning, for your sovereignty over us. We thank you that you're with us in the fire and the flood. God, you are a faithful God and we're grateful this morning that you've called us to this time and this place that you've uh, made it to where this is the text that is before us, and we pray that you would use it in a mighty way, that you'd magnify it in such a way through the power of your Spirit that, God, you'd give supernatural ears to hear, you'd allow our hearts to receive, that we might be transformed by this time around your Word. God, you've given this perfect and errant gift for this purpose, and we pray that it would be done today as you will it to be done, that no hindrance in our flesh or around in our mind, Lord, that will come in the way and try to hinder what you desire to do. That way you would get all the honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just a quick note um, for those of you that are joining us online and following with us during this time of uh, COVID that are streaming along. We're going to be doing the Lord's Supper next month on the 20th of September. And so we want to involve all of our congregation, even those that are having to quarantine at home. And so if you'll call the church office, we will make a way to uh, so that you can come and pick up uh, the things that you need so that you can participate on the 20th. We can all do the Lord's Supper together, whether you're here or you're uh, with us virtually in your home. So that'll be a blessing. Um, amen. Okay. If we're going to have a conversation about marriage, and I could only have one conversation with you, this would be the conversation that I would have. This one we're going to have this morning. I feel like this is the most important foundational conversation that we could have about our relationships, about our marriages, about the way that we relate to each other. And we need to consider before we start even what does the Bible say about our relationships? Primarily relationships between us and other believers. Jesus says that the way the world is going to know that we're authentic and genuine followers of him is by the way that we love 
each other. Isn't that what he said? So Jesus was elevating relationships, saying this is how important relationships are, that it's going to be the gauge that the world will be able to see, that will draw people in, that will identify you as being a genuine Jesus follower. And certainly the marriage relationship is the most important relationship of all human relationships, and it, the Bible teaches, is a picture of Christ's love for his church. So this is an important conversation that the way that we live is putting something on display and we need to think about what it is we're putting on display. We need to think about what is the story that our lives, whether intentional or unintentionally, are telling because it's telling the world a story. And what I know and what you know is that we live in a world of relational catastrophe. People can't get along with each other. People are frustrated with each other. And, you know, I I think that marriage in particular has always been a challenge, certainly. Only God would dream up this idea where we're going to take two seemingly incompatible people, completely different in every way, and we're going to stick them together for life and make them share a bathroom together. (laughs) I mean, what in the world? Share a checkbook? Like, you know... What are the chances that's not going to get hairy at times? Like zero. I mean, it's going to be challenging, right? But I'm just telling you, 27, almost 28 years into this thing, uh, I mean, I'm not an expert on marriage, but I'm an expert on my marriage. And I know a lot about what not to do because I've done it. So... And I've helped a lot of people with their marriage. So let's try to have a conversation and understand. Look, Martin Luther called marriage the school of character. That ought to tell you something about marriage. Like, you know. But here's what what you need to know about it. God created it. So therefore, he's fully vested in the success of it. So no matter what, I mean, this is what I've learned over decades of, of dealing with people's marriages is that no matter how bad it gets, there's hope because God made marriage and he'll help you. And if you have two people willing to work on it, then God's always ready and willing to help. Now, uh, just some, you know, I I like to give you just words of wisdom every opportunity that I get. And uh, this is definitely an opportunity for me to give you a word of wisdom. So, Do not, under any circumstances, start preparing a sermon series on marriage while moving for the first time in 18 years. It's a super bad idea. I mean, there's been warfare in my house. I'm studying, preparing to teach on marriage, and it's like World War III. And, you know, we're moving. It's, you know, it's God teaching. Molding, shaping. Now, where do we need to start? This is where we start. First of all, let's understand, according to Scripture, in order to appreciate the good news, we have to understand the bad news. If you don't understand the bad news, here's a news flash. There is no good news. There's no good news. You cannot know good news without knowing first the bad news. Have you ever noticed when you're reading Scripture that the Bible always leads with the bad news? Because 
you need bad news to know the good news. The good news isn't good without the bad. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 1, let's begin in verse 12. The Word of God says, the Apostle Paul, writing at the tail end of his ministry, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. And faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a mouthful. That didn't sound like a marriage scripture. Well, it is. It's a marriage scripture. It's a life scripture. It's a scripture that will infuse itself if we'll allow it into all of our human relationships, primarily with other believers, and it will bring transformation and peace where there is none. Now, this is Paul writing to, uh, he's in Macedonia, he's, Macedonia, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and the problem that he's dealing with is false teachers. And they're teaching a false doctrine, a false gospel, and it's hurting the body. And so he's writing this letter to correct that. But in doing so, what he's revealing is some of himself He's revealing some of himself and how God works in him in order to bring correction in the gospel. And so let's look at how he does this. Number one, on your listening guide. First thing we need to do if we want to display the gospel in our relationships, we need to acknowledge our biggest problem lies within us. Now, the Apostle Paul, whom we oftentimes want to romanticize as Christians and think, you know, we know that in the past, you know, Saul of Tarsus was a bad guy and he did some bad things, you know, but let's look at all the great things that he did in the New Testament. And, but let's just don't glaze over that. Notice what he says in verse 13. Although I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man. Now, G now Jesus was enemy number one in Paul's life prior to his meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life was devoted to discrediting Jesus and the utter collapse of Christianity. Make no mistake about it, Paul was not just a bad guy going through a bad season. No, he was a brutal, bloody, religious predator. And in the midst of that, God arrested him with his grace and his mercy. And encountered him on the Damascus Road and revolutionized him from the inside out. But it was in the midst of horrible, grievous, angry, rageful sin. And what is Paul's secret to success? How do you go from this degenerate, you should be on death row, 
horrible person that is a menace to society to the main contributor in the New Testament. Well, he's giving us a glimpse of who he is here. He's showing us that he never drifted far from what God saved him from. See, he always stayed tethered to where he once was. You see, here's what I know and what some of you know. You've been walking along this Christian path for a while. It's easy to just sort of shake off all these things that happened in the past and pretend like they never happened and just dress yourself up and talk the talk and, you know, act like, you know, it's just always been good. And, you know, you never really were this terrible person. See, I want you to know your pastor was a terrible person. And I'm not, although I'm ashamed of that, I'm not hiding that. Because I'm connected to that. That's a reminder to me. That's important to me. Now I want you to think with me about this. See, I'm making the case that this text is making the case that Paul never moved completely on from who he once was. Look at verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Now, I want to point something out to you. You might want to underline your Bible. It doesn't say of whom I was the chief. It says I am the chief. See, he's not saying, hey, I was this terrible person. He's saying, I was this terrible person. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, and I was an insolent man. But you know what? I'm still today the chief of sinners. See? That now, that's not going to be a popular message. Here Paul is at the end of his ministry. He's the epitome of a mature Christian. Wouldn't you say that? Like, there's never been a more mature believer than the, the Apostle Paul writing First and Second Timothy. There's never been a more accomplished believer outside of the Lord Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul when he's writing this. And yet somehow... The way that this maturity and godliness, all is, I mean, this is the most theologically astute mind that's ever lived. And yet, he never completely disconnects himself from who he once was. Now, let's, let's think a minute. His sinfulness creates an awareness that then creates a thankfulness. See, what happens is, is that as he is constantly reminded within himself of his great sinfulness, it creates this awareness of his need for a Savior and then a thankfulness for what God has done in his life. And so it makes a progression in his life that's very important. Now, what happens to somebody who comes along and believes, really, it's the new American gospel. The new American gospel is what is the going thing today. You get them in your mailbox just like I do, the little postcard that's inviting you to the local church, and it says, hey, 
Come visit with us Sunday. You're going to make a lot of great friends. You're going to hear a short, uplifting, positive message. We're going to help you with your marriage. We're going to help you with your depression. We're going to help you with this. We're going to help you with that. But I want to I explain something to you. If it's disconnected from a conversation about sin, it's not going to help anybody do anything. It's not going to help anybody do anything. Because you got to have a conversation about sin before you can ever have a conversation about the gospel. And so all of these people that want to leave behind, like we're, we're just, we're not going to talk about sin. We're not even going to have a cross in our church because it's going to be offensive to some people. Well, it should be offensive. That's why it's there. See, that's exactly why it's there. It should offend you. Someone had to die because of you. That ought to offend you. Amen? But see, the thing is, why are we, we're not talking about the gospel if we don't talk about sin. Because why do you need the gospel? You don't need it. If we don't talk about sin, well, there's no point. And if all we ever talk about is, hey, we're just going to talk about the good things. Well, let me tell you something. You know what makes the good things good? The bad things. That's what makes the good things. Look, if I wasn't that bad, then Jesus isn't that good. The cross isn't that good. Salvation isn't that great. Salvation is only as great as I was wicked. And so what makes salvation really great in my life is that I know who I was. Are you the worst sinner you know? Who is the worst sinner you know? See, a lot of times if you ask people who the worst sinner they know is, they're going to, first person they think about is somebody really close to them. Because you got to be close to somebody to really know how sinful they are. Huh. See, here's the thing. When you get married, ain't nothing hidden behind the green curtain no more. It's all out there. Here comes the, you know, the, the, the knowledge of all of your faults is on high display. And slowly, as the honeymoon phase wears off, everything comes to the surface. Paul says in verse 15, it's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that we should all accept this, that what we need to do is follow his lead and accept this reality that, hey, the, my, my biggest problem is in me. My biggest problem has never been who I'm married to. It's never been who I'm trying to relate to. My biggest problem has never been my family. It's never been my marriage. It's never been my spouse. It's never been you. It's always and always will be me. I am far and away, number one, hands down, the world champion, biggest problem in Tony's life is Tony. 100% of the time. Paul is saying embrace this. Know this. Look, but look at verse 16. For this reason, he says, I obtained mercy, that in me Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him on for everlasting life. So what he's saying to us is, is that Jesus will never become sweet until sin becomes bitter. Sin has become bitter for Jesus to be sweet. The more bitter 
thinnest, the sweeter the gospel will be. That's why we all got saved at a low point in our life, not a high point. You didn't get saved when everything was perfect, and neither did I. We got saved in a valley. We got saved in a struggle, in a trial. God was near to us because we reached out to him because we needed him, because life got bitter. Now, we need to be careful that we're, we're putting on display a true biblical theology that doesn't ignore the reality of ongoing sin. I mean, it's astonishing to me today how many people want to somehow profess to live this Christianity where the flesh is just completely dead and there's no more, you know, they, they don't struggle with sin anymore. The greatest Christian who's ever lived just told you he's the chief. He is the chief at the end of his ministry of all sinners. You understand that? Like, that is a mind-blowing statement. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's a helpful thing. It will revolutionize your marriage. You wake up every day and remind yourself of what a dirty, rotten scoundrel you were in your past, and it will help your marriage. It'll make you a much better friend. It'll make you a much more compassionate family member. You'll learn to get along with people way better when you realize what God saved you from and freed you from. What Paul's telling us is that we need to be Christians that exalt the solution without losing sight of the problem. See, now here's where the, look, I'm not exalting the problem. But what I'm trying to correct is that ignoring the problem. You understand? I'm exalting the solution, but I want to I acknowledge the problem that's created me exalting the solution. You see, the reality of who I was has to stay there for me to keep this vibrant fire burning for the exaltation of the solution to the problem. Because the further I move away from the problem, the easier it is for me to forget I ever had that problem. See? And then, so this is what you find today. You find people that just, you just dull out. You just get dull. You're dull spiritually. You feel distant from God. There's no fire. There's no zeal. There's no passion. And you're wondering why. And then, and I've seen this a thousand times over. And so you know what you do? You start trying to generate some passion. You think, well, if I do this, if I read this or go to this or, or sing these songs or do this, I can generate some passion for God. That's never going to work. It never worked. Let me tell you what you need to do. You need to revisit your past. You need to go and remember how sinful you were. You need to go back and, and take a tour of what God saved you from, and that's going to give you a passion and zeal for Jesus because you're going to think, man, am I grateful for Jesus. But you see, if you've just been wobbling along for 20 years, 
You don't even remember what used to be. You know, you're so far away from that, you're just thinking, well, I mean, I hear people say things that just make me want to go crazy. Somebody literally told me this the other day, that praise God they don't go to church here. I'm having a conversation with a young man. He says to me, well, I've always been a Christian. I went, say what? He said, I've always been. I mean, what? And I said, what do you mean by always? He goes, always. He goes, my whole life I've been a Christian. I'm like, okay. That's impossible, bro. It's impossible. He's like, what do you mean it's impossible? I, from the time I was born, my parents took me to church. I don't care. I don't care if you lived at the church your whole life. You have not always been a Christian. In fact, I'm pretty positive right now you're not a Christian. Because the only way you can be a Christian is to acknowledge that you were a sinner, hopeless, separated from God. See, if you don't have a problem, you're excluded from the solution. But, you know, people live today like you could... Maybe that could be true. Well, no, it can't. The biggest problem in all of us is us. So no matter how frustrated you are with somebody else, remember, you're a bigger problem than they are. It's a game changer. Because trust me, I get frustrated with you like you don't even know. But you know what saves us? I say I'm a bigger problem than you are. I am. I'm telling you. You just want to wring somebody's neck. I'm a bigger problem than you are. I'm a bigger problem than you are. That's number one. Number two. Second thing Paul would tell us we need to do, we need to abandon our position to sin against. Now, this is a tough one. Buckle up. It's hard. This is, in my opinion, this is like the greatest hindrance in our marriage relationships, especially. It's just terrible. Families get ripped apart. Marriages ripped apart. What's the greatest hindrance in your marriage? Like if you, if you ask somebody, hey, what's the biggest struggle you have in marriage? The first thing we're going to think of, I'm going to think of, is some, something my wife does that drives me crazy. That's my biggest hindrance in marriage. I never say, well, you know what? My biggest problem in marriage is something I do. I never say that. It's clearly something she does that's the problem. Right? Well, yeah, that only makes sense. Here's the problem. It creates a posture of sin against, and that is a posture that will destroy it will destroy our intimacy. It will destroy our marriage. It will destroy our relationships every single time. Now, let me break this down for you, okay? What happens is, is that Paul is saying he's the chief of sinners. What a lot of us in our culture are saying, we're not perfect. But what our highest identity is, what our highest position is, is that we're carrying this wound that somebody else perpetrated against us. Now listen, it's a killer. I want you to understand that I understand how horrific sin can be and what it can do 
to our lives. I am the one who sits and listens as you recount your stories of abandonment or molestation or sexual or physical abuse. I cry with you. I am not in any way discounting the pain of terrible things that have happened to you. I got it. They're terrible. But they're not your biggest problem. You can't identify yourself by something that someone else has done to you. Because in doing so, you are negating the gospel. Now listen, I know some of you are, boy, you, are, you just walled me out. Now listen, when your identity, when your position in a relationship starts with an experience that you had, it starts with your pain, it starts with your history, it starts with something that someone has done to you, It's a relational catastrophe because it's unbiblical and it's, it's ungospel. Now, now listen, listen. It may be horrible. It may be, it may be life-altering. It may be unbelievably painful. But it's not your biggest problem. It's not your, it's not your biggest problem. Being sinned against is never going to be your biggest problem, and here's how I know why. I want you to think about this, because some of you, you have been cheated on. You have been hurt. You've been wounded. You've been mistreated. You've been let down. You've been, I mean, the list goes on and on. And so you carry this badge around with you, and you hold it over your spouse all the time. And I just want to ask you a question. I'm not saying that what happened to you wasn't painful. I'm not saying that it didn't scar you for life, hurt you. I'm not saying any of that, but I want to ask you this question. Is it possible this morning that Jesus came and died on a cross for your second greatest need? Is that possible? Or is it only possible that if God was going to slaughter his son, it would have to be for your greatest need. He wouldn't slaughter his son for your second greatest need and leave your highest need unmet. Now, would he? That wouldn't make any sense at all. Now, would it? Jesus came, according to Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and everywhere else in the Bible, he came to save sinners. He didn't come to save those sinned against. You got it? It doesn't mean it's not important, but it does mean it's not your first and highest position. He came to save sinners. He came to meet the greatest need you have. And that's the need that he met. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy. See, he's the chief of sinners in the very next day. But I, for this reason, for what reason? What is the reason? He just told us. The reason I obtained mercy is what? 
The fact that I'm the chief of sinners. Because if I'm not the chief of sinners, I don't obtain mercy because I don't need mercy. But I obtain mercy because I need mercy. Because Jesus came to save only one kind of people. Sinners. That's it. He didn't come to save people that were just, hmm. Because you know what? He was surrounded by them. And they even walked up to him and said, Lord, tell me how I can inherit eternal life. And they walked away sorrowful. He only came for one kind of person. Broken, decrepit, wicked, black-hearted sinners. Just like me. Thank God that he did. And what we don't want to do is convince ourselves of how not bad we were. That's not good. Again, I understand Nobody's pouring into the church to hear this message. You got stuck here today, so you stuck. I mean, ain't, ain't nobody on TV saying this. Nobody. They're saying, hey, let's just be positive and uplifting. For what reason? If we ain't talking about sin, then don't tell me about the gospel because I don't need it. Because I'm the chief of sinners. See, the fundamental problem of humanity is a problem between us and God. It's not a problem between me and you. It's not a problem between husband and wife. It's not a problem between brother and sister. Do you got that? See, what the problem that Jesus came to resolve was he came to reconcile man to God. So if you're walking around and every day of your life is dominated by being sinned against, it's unbiblical. It's an ungospel, and it's going to be a it's gonna. It's a disaster. You already know that. It's your your marriage is limping. You know why it's limping? Because if somebody in your house has a tag sinned against, that's all it'll ever do is limp, and it'll eventually probably die. Amen. You can't live like that. No one can live with sinned against, and no one can live being sinned against. That's not the gospel. Here's a news flash. We've sinned against God far more than anyone has sinned against us. So let's just take our little badge off and admit it. And how do I know that? You're saying, well, you don't know what happened to me. You're right. I probably don't, but I don't need to. I know what you did. And it was the same thing what I did. And let me tell you what happened. You committed a sin. And maybe, you, maybe somebody committed a terrible sin against you, and that's bad, and I'm sorry, and I wish that wouldn't have happened. But that pales in comparison to the fact that every time I sin and every time you sin, we sin against a holy God. We, we, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't primarily sin against each other. We sin against God. So when you sin against God, that's a billion times worse than anything you can ever do to another person. Do you understand that? No sin, person to person, can ever compare to sin against the highest being in the universe. None. So what are we holding on to? You know, in Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, 
You know the story where the master has a servant. The servant owes the master this, this in, it's an unimaginable debt. And so the servant begs and pleads for his life. And the master forgives the servant's debt. And then the servant walks out free and clear and goes and finds another servant and holds them hostage for this small, minute debt after they've been forgiven this massive debt by their master. Now, I want, to, I want you to listen as I read what Jesus says. He says to this servant, he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. You should not have, you should not also have had compassion, shouldn't you, on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you. So Jesus is saying, you should have passion, compassion the way I had compassion. And his master was angry and delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all that was due him. So held him accountable for the debt he could never pay. And then here's the end. Jesus then looks at the people listening and he says, so my heavenly father will also do to you if from your heart you do not forgive your brother his trespasses. So you've been sinned against. I got it. It was horrible. I got it. It was terrible. I understand. Do you know that that parable in Matthew 18 is about you and your relationship with God? That's what it's about. Do you know there's nobody in heaven? There's not one person in heaven. There's never been a person in heaven who didn't forgive. Be careful. You better be careful. Sinned against. Be careful. Because it's not the gospel. See, the gospel says to the person who committed the sin, I, I committed that sin against God. I'm sorry that I did that to my wife or I did that to my husband. But I'm way more sorry that I did that to God. And when I start to, to ponder on and meditate on the reality that I sinned against God, my heart begins to just melt within me. And I start to realize I, 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 I got to make this right. And I just repent before God and I make things right with the people around me. Meanwhile, what does the person do with the badge on sinned against? Now, they're, they're, on the, they're mad. They're wounded. They're hurt. The gospel says to them, hey, wait a minute. So your sin wasn't that bad? So you've never committed a sin that bad. Is that what you're saying? You're saying that Jesus can forgive you, but you can't forgive them. And here's the thing. I don't mean with your mouth. I mean with your heart. 
Because if you're still thinking about it or you're still bringing it up, if it's ever a conversation, look, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. If we're still talking about the same old broken record, there's something wrong in your heart. And here's what I'm telling you right now. I'm your pastor. I love you. You better get a handle on this before it's too late. I'm telling you. You might just find yourself in a predicament when you take your last breath that you weren't expecting. Because Jesus doesn't take kindly to people who want to proclaim his forgiveness and not give it to others. Number three, we got to surrender our confident morality. Now listen, this is, this is the, you know, this is the Tony part of the message right here. I'm the king of confident morality, okay? I have learned everything I'm about to tell you the hard way, and it all happened through marriage. See, by confident morality, what I mean is, if my favorite saying is, who would do that? That's my favorite saying. So, like, if I'm at home and somebody does something dumb, I go, who does that? As if I would never do that. Whoever did this is mental. What's the problem? You, you don't know who does that. That's my favorite saying. Just being transparent here, I'm chief of sinners. And what it is, is it's, it, it's taking the higher moral ground in a situation. It's, it's, it's saying, hey, I'm not perfect, but I don't do that. I mean, I, I'm far from perfect, but I ain't never done that. See? So, marriage, relationships expose this confident morality. And it's where conflict lives. It's where it breeds. It's where it dominates. Conflict just has a field day in all of this. So because it, it creates a scenario where we replace God and we become the judge of things. Now, listen, God wants us to have gospel-centered conversations about things that are wrong and address them biblically and correctly and write them, and together we need to work towards whatever God's will is. I'm not saying that we ignore sin in any way. I'm saying how do we address sin? How do we address a problem? And this is what I'm telling you. What confident morality is, is, is uh, the best book that I've ever read about marriage other than the Bible is When Sinners Say I Do. Don't go try to buy it in the bookstore because the first service bought all the copies that we had. But it's the best. I've read it like 10 times. Everything I've learned about marriage besides from the Bible, I probably learned from that book. But there's a section in the book that talks about this. It talks about how we look over our heart into our spouse's heart. And I'm like, I so do that. What we're supposed to do is look through our heart to their heart. See, I look over my heart and look at Lisa's heart and go, who does that? But instead of looking through my chief of sinners heart and go, oh, I could see that. Yeah. See, here's the thing. Now, I'm good pastorally. So, like, Pastorally, I got this thing down where so if, if you 
This, look, if, if you come into my office and, and you're just wringing your hands and your eyes are all watery and you're just all tensed up and your voice starts crackling and you confess your sin to me and you're so worried about my reaction to your sin, how am I going to react? And do you know what? My first thought is, every time that happens, my first thought, no matter what you confess to me, my first thought is always, I could do that. I could do that. That's my very first thought. A, because it's true, and B, because that's the only way I can love you and care for you through this problem. But somehow at home, that eludes me. Somehow at home, I don't think I could do that. I think everybody should do it the way it should be done, which is, of course, the way I want it done, right? Because that's the way it should be. So early on, let me give you a good example of this. So early on, I, I came into marriage with this very sort of set way about me. All of the pain and the struggles that I faced as a child, the way they manifested themselves in me was to create order and structure. Because order and structure is how I feel safe and secure. And, and you know, I protected myself from the chaos of my childhood by ordering things and structuring things. Well... I married Lisa. Now, she's kind of like a hurricane. You don't know where she's going, and you don't know what she's going to do when she gets there. But when she gets there, she'll figure it out. And no matter how hard I try to make a plan, no matter how hard I try to get all my ducks in a row and get everything straight, that's not how Lisa rolls. See, Lisa flies by the seat of her pants. Lisa, Lisa's all about the moment. And so in the beginning, I used to get really frustrated. And I wanted to change her. I'm going to change her. I mean, I'm going I'm to get her to be like me because that's the way you ought to be because the world is orderly. Didn't God create the world in order? Yes, he did. Did you ever read the Bible? The tabernacle, everything's in its place. Godliness right there. I take the moral high road. And it used to be a huge source of conflict. But then when I took the posture of the chief of sinners, I began to learn. I began to learn that, see, Lisa, it's not that Lisa's against spending a bunch of time to come up with a plan to prepare for what's going to happen. She's not against that. It's just not her number one highest priority. You know what her number one highest priority is? It's being fully present in the moment that she's in. Do you know what I spent my first, the first half of my life missing? The moments that I was in. 
And when I started to learn from her how to let go and be in the moment, I started realizing all the things I was missing. You see? But you can't see that if you're taking the moral high road. It won't, it doesn't work like that. Look, God is so committed to helping us embody his patience that he's going to intentionally unite us with someone who tests our patience. That's what he does. That's, it's a gift from God. See, we think that opposites attract was our idea. That wasn't our idea. God's sanctification was God's idea. And guess one of the things he likes to do? I'm going to sanctify you right up a good bit right here. I'm going to give you the opposite of what you are. And we'll see how that works for a while. Yeah. See, you gotta, you're learning to be like God by the way you... So, so listen now, I'm just telling you. This is how that plays out. You got, you got conversations you need to have, so you approach them looking through your heart. But you got conversations you don't need to have, and so you know what you do? You eat it. Look, when I get in my wife's car and I turn the key and that thing's got no gas in it and it looks like a mobile recycling unit, I don't say nothing. I just drive to the gas station. I put gas in it. You know, you know what I do sometimes? Just for my own good, when I'm in my truck, I'll just like throw a piece of paper on the floor and look at it. And I'll try to drive and pretend it's not there, you know. I'm like, it's not there. It's not there. It's not there. And then I just feel better for a second. You know what I mean? You know what's good for me sometimes? Riding my wife's car. It's a, you know, let me tell you something. There's a lot of joy happens in that car. There's a lot of singing, a lot of smiling, a lot of joy happens in there. Because she's into joy. She's not into, she'll, she, cleaning it, she'll do that when she has to. See, we can learn. But you got to look through your heart. At somebody else's heart. Well, lastly, look at verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to see something. Look at Paul. He ends this section he started with this recognition of sin, but he doesn't stay there. He doesn't stall there. He's not in neutral. He's not in reverse. He's actually moving forward. He starts with this, this recognition of his sin, and it actually fuels him forward in the gospel to this beautiful doxology. It fuels him to praise. It fuels him to, to worship. See, once we've embraced our position as chief of sinners... Then we can begin 
Look, I'm just telling you, I, I can't fix all your relational problems. God can, I can't. But I know that all of us can fix us. That's what I know. You, you, I don't, it, it takes two, but you can fix you. And if there's one thing that I would implore you to do, it is embrace this trustworthy saying from the Apostle Paul. Let this become a reality in your life. It will transform the way that you relate to people around you. It will transform your, not all of them. You got some, listen, and remember, what I'm talking about will work. It's something we should do universally, but primarily with other believers, it is imperative that you hear me. The recognition of sin will lead to a preoccupation with the glory of God. What could be better than that? You see, in my marriage over the years, the things that originally started out to be the sources of conflict have become the areas of praise. The things that used to make me crazy are the reminders of the glory of God and the grace in my life that He's been. You see... Because it, it grounds me to the reality that I am my biggest problem. I am the chief of sinners. It's not my wife. It's not my family. It's me. It's me. And when I start there, when I walk and talk and think and speak in the reality of what God has saved me from, then grace and mercy start permeating my relationships. And then I'm able to have hard conversations in love. I'm able to, to address things and find resolution. But look, if you're taking the moral high road, if you're wearing the badge of sin against, or if you're somehow living in the delusion that you weren't that bad, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. But if you'll embrace the gospel reality that God did slaughter His Son and it was for our greatest need and it was our sin. And we could have never ever, ever, in a billion lifetimes, paid that debt. But God paid it for us. He paid it all for us. So that we could then walk in the shadow of the cross, constantly remembering what God did on my behalf. So let that permeate the way we see, speak, and think about one another. And what will happen is we'll be a walking display of praise of God's amazing grace.
Because you know what? Grace is only as amazing as your sin is wicked. It's only as amazing as the debt was devastating. And so let the offense of the cross bring healing into your relationships as we recognize we're the chief of sinners. That's exactly who Jesus came for, the chief. Let's stand and bow our heads.